Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites. This is episode 167. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Hey, uh, this is Martin in the captain's chair. We are uh, living large here in uh, Studio R, uh, relaxing on the atrium to, to get 167 off and going. So it's a history episode. Uh, Fresh and, back from Biscuit Belly, don't forget that. Oh, Biscuit Belly, we Indeed. love you. Oh. And uh, so, yes, if we if we sound a little uh, like like manatees lolling in the canal, that's because our bellies are so full from from Biscuit Belly. I was just going to say lethargic, but you certainly just imaged that all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> this boy may have a flair for writing after all. Maybe he does. That's right. Uh, Might be. Would you to know that? Yes. Twelve thousand words this week. Awesome, dude. Awesome. So it might be total crap. Which first draft it probably first draft, is. Of course it is. Nothing wrong with that. That's how you start. So, um, I just gotta. I'm just. I'm hoping I have enough material to get somewhere. Well, you'll get somewhere. Whether it'll be worth going to, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It may be enough for a novel. Maybe enough for a novella, or even a series of short stories. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, you know, take it where it goes. Take anyway, it where it goes. And anyway, published you know significant. A lot of his stuff was first published serialized in magazines. Of course, that was 100 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, we have different channels for that. Still, anything is possible. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I have a story that's entertaining that people will like. Um, I think I've got kind of this Michael Mann, Quentin Tarantino vibe going in it. So I'm going to keep riding that and having some fun. The main thing was I didn't realize how much fun it would be to just do. Oh, yeah. To get all this out of my head that's been in there for months, as we've been talking about, and, like, I can do this. I can actually sit during a day and not change the keyboard. I I did errands almost every day that I was off and took a nice long lunch break every day and just, you know. My daughter says there's, uh, you know, heck with crack cocaine, right, that's the most the, the biggest high that you can do. Yeah, it, it was super fun to just know that I could sit there and do it. How does how does your daughter know that comparison? Uh, I thought you might say that. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> metaphor, sir. Metaphor. metaphor. Ah, yes. ah. But back on track. Literary device. <laughs> back on track. Uh, today is a history, history episode. Another one of our important treaties. Is this the last one? The I last believe one. this is yes, the, the last one. one. Yeah. Um, this is the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. So this was a little bit different. This is not one that is attempting to settle some kind of war. Right, all the ones yeah, we've the talked about ones before, before are all on the heels of a conflict. This one's sort of on the heels of a conflict of World War One, but it's much later, and it's not directly tied to the war. In fact, it's even concluded outside of the auspices of... The League of Nations, because it is being driven by the U.S., who isn't part of the League of Nations. Yes, which we talked about last episode, yes. Yes. So 1928, of course, is the Coolidge administration, and Frank Kellogg is the U.S. Secretary of State for Coolidge. Aristide Briand, which I'm hopefully not completely mangling his name. No, you got that right. right? Yeah, I think that's right. So he is the French foreign minister, and they are concluding this treaty and other nations do subsequently sign on. Quite a few. Um, Almost everybody. Uh, including the, you know, the belligerents uh, of the 
World War One, um, and it's a very simple, basic pact that sought to essentially outlaw aggressive war. Of course, as we know, didn't work out too hot. No, no. it's literally you know just slightly over ten years before Hitler invades Poland. Yes, eleven years later, the world is burning. Um, really, even less than that, because you've got the Spanish Civil War starting Civil, just yes, six or seven yes, years after that. Yes. You've got Italy invading Abyssinia. You've got uh, Japan yes. invading China. Japan yes. invading Manchuria. And, and, and these countries are all signatories. They're all signatories. to this to this pact to this treaty, and yet they are waging what, of course, in hindsight, is very aggressive, very much. Um, you know, anti-ethnic wars outside the their borders. Right. The interesting thing, though, is, and this is one of the unintended consequences, I didn't intend to get to the unintended consequences so quickly, but these are all undeclared wars. Yes. So technically, they have not gone to war. <laughs> yeah, which that's one of the big results, is the fact that, you know, well, if you're not going to let us call it that, we'll just do it and just call it something else. Right. Now, Hitler, he went to war. He just didn't care what anybody else thought. Right. Yeah, by that and time, he, he, he wanted that. He right. Because, I mean, he did declare war on the U.S. So, he, you know, he did, you know, declarations of war were used. Of course, he saw that as a response to us declaring war on Japan. Uh, so, you know. So, that's why this episode is called Tilting at Windmills. This, you know, this Don Quixote image of, oh, well, this idealism of... We're going to outlaw war, and everything's going to be unicorns and rainbows. And the treaty has been derided throughout history yeah. because of that. And I think that's, that's fair, but it still remains an important milestone because it begins to codify this idea that war is wrong. That it is not the way to conduct international relations. That there are alternatives. And it begins to give a legal basis then for the United Nations and for Nuremberg and for condemning nations who do wage aggressive wars. Yes, that, and that's... That's the so, second time you've used that phrase. I'm sorry to jump no, in. No, 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 please. please. But... Aggressive war. I find that to be... It's redundant. Redundant, it? yes. yes. Because every nation thinks they're fighting a defensive war. But you can still be aggressive in your defense. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, if you're passive in your defense, you're going to lose. <laughs> that's well, that's right. right. The best defense is offense. Come on. I mean, we. This, that's that's how these things, you know... Right. It's just, I'm just wondering, the only reason I bring it up is, is that a phrase that you got from your research, or is this... Just what having to pop into your head as you're well, discussing. Well, here's this is a possibility. Maybe we should just do this because this damn thing is just two paragraphs. It is. Wait, what? Yes, it's two yes, paragraphs it, it long. Really that's is. all. It's literally. Oh my god, I could have actually prepared for this. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> literally, uh, and, and, and I'm just going to read it because it's so so short. It's Article One and Article Two, and that's it. Which wow. is, you know, I did not realize it was that short. Yeah. Bad on me. Uh, article One. I'm just going to read it. The high contracting parties solemnly declare in the names of their respective peoples that they condemn recourse to war for the solution of international controversies and renounce it as an instrument of national policy in their relationships with one another. That's one. Article two is the high contracting parties agree 
that the settlement or solution of all disputes or conflicts of whatever nature or of whatever origin they may be, which may arise among them, shall never be sought except by pacific means. Meaning peace, for yes. those of you that... Right. Don't Arbitration and mediation and things like so, that. Right. Non-belligerency. So, the, so I gotta say, this is interesting because, again, I kind of skimmed... The, I, I read that, but I was thinking that was a summary... Because I was skimming through this. That's the bad boy itself, yeah. And the reason I, I find that interesting is because one of the complaints about this is about this pact is that it is full of... Actually, later on in this same page, it says one of the complaints is that it is full of legalism and high ideals. It's like, mm-hmm. what legalism? <laughs> legalism is you know a 200-page document, not a two-paragraph page. Yeah, it's document. an Apple user agreement. Right. <laughs> oh, very good. Very nice to say. Oh, nice to say. Dude. That's oh. right. You are on fire this That's morning. Right. Like Michael Jackson's hair in a Pepsi commercial. Come on. Let's oh, go. my goodness. Woo. Yeah, exactly. But you're right. Exactly. It is It is not that short. Right. I mean, almost immediately, and, and again, throughout, especially in hindsight after what happens, it is, it is ridiculed, just this moralism, this unicorn and rainbow idealism uh, of like, well, that's just ridiculous. But sometimes there's a point to idealism. Oh, yes. yes. Because yes. where do ideals come from, if not idealism? And that's where you've got to start. And it does put it in, in, a, in a quasi-legal framework, even though at the time it was ridiculed as being, well, who cares? I wouldn't call it a legal framework so much as, because a framework implies there's a structure set up like a League of Nations or a right. uh, United and, Nations. And that's noticeably missing, of course. Right. There's, right. No, there's no way to enforce this. There's yeah. absolutely right. no way to enforce this. That's the thing about all treaties, though. Except as the League of... Because one of the complaints about the League of Nations was it was the treaty to end wars, except the only way to enforce it was by going to war. But really, that's just about the only way to enforce most treaties. Right. Because as we're seeing in the Ukraine conflict, we can sanction Russia all we want... It's not stopping them. What's mm-hmm. stopping them is Ukrainian men on the ground with guns. And, you know, a few missiles and, and some mortars and some really good anti-tank weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Sticky bombs or whatever, they're really good. Drones and javelins. Yeah. But, you know, so it, it, it's treaties by themselves are meaningless. Just it, They're like any law. Mm-hmm. Laws themselves only have the strength of those who are committed to enforcing them, or Absolutely. committed to those as the ideal to which you want to uphold. Right. So you guys know I read a lot of post-apocalyptic, or apocalyptic, you know, causing the apocalypse kind of, you know, right from the beginning to the the effects, uh, that kind of fiction, because uh, I find it fascinating to to read how various writers have people deal with these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. And one of the things that, you know, everybody, almost everybody very rarely is, I mean, some of them are too fast because, like, you know, two hours after the first uh, guy gets bitten by a zombie, some warlord has already set up uh, some <laughs> kind of slave ring in the local high school football stadium. It's like, dude, it takes more than two days to, to, to throw this shit together. Oh, pardon my French there. To throw this well, stuff together. Right, please. Uh, you know, Swear all you damn well, please. That's right. Well, you know, I don't like to go too far, but... Um, yeah, but almost all of them agree that very quickly what we consider law and order gets thrown out in the apocalypse because uh, at that because at a certain point it's every man or nation for themselves. When you when you get to that point, the treaties don't mean a thing. The laws don't mean a thing. Mm-hmm. It's whatever you can enforce 
you know, with your stop. Or I'll say stop again if you're in England. Yeah. Or your yeah. AR if you're in America. Yeah. I'm glad you put that point, brought that up because essentially what this is, uh, is what, that was, what was outdatedly called a gentleman's agreement. That's yes. all yeah. this really is, is we're going to agree to do this and we're, and we're going to do it apparently in good faith. Yeah, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue to abide by it until we don't. Right, and this is until we have a reason I, not. You know, to. It, the criticism is especially pointed because even with Article Two saying, "Well, we're gonna agree to use these other means," doesn't define. Th- them. There's no structure at all, so that it's that's a very pointed, valid criticism of. Well, you didn't even set up what would come later, things like the International Court at the Hague and all that. Right, you didn't even so. I mean, this is this is toilet paper. I mean, roll it up on a little cardboard spool and put it by the toilet. Right, right. Well, you know, the, the 1648 uh, uh, treaty is far more uh, lasting in, in effect. Uh, you know, granted, it, it's one that really was almost as worthless because re- really almost all of these are almost worthless uh, in, in the long run. It's only recently. And honestly, it's... I will say this, it is because of this ideal that World War II aside, and it's kind of like the, the test case, which we have now, so okay, yeah, we're never going to do that again. Uh, yeah. We have we don't really have, at least in the Western world, major wars. Uh, you know, Ukraine is a major war in scope yeah. in, in the sense that, you know, you're talking about two relatively large countries, but it's geographically limited. Uh, you've got civil wars that still happen, tend to be yes. in smaller, less developed countries. Yeah. Sure. You've got the entire Middle East from the Mediterranean to uh, India, uh, to the borders of India, and even inside India, they have their own issues yeah. uh, that are that is constantly in upheaval yeah. in some way or another. But what what's really restricting large-scale armed conflict in the modern world? Is it treaties and international agreements and the UN, or is it something else? I'd say it started out. I think it's been a. a I think it's been a, a winding way. Hmm. It started out as the UN and everybody in reaction to World War II saying, "This is crazy. We can't do this ever again." It, I mean, it, it. Every war from the Middle Ages forward has gotten worse in scope and mm-hmm. destruction because the technology has advanced. Now we're at the point where we are literally on the brink, if we chose to, not on the brink of it's going to happen any second, but we could literally wipe out all life on the planet. That's correct. And that's never, that's, and that's, yeah. you remember that the, mutually assured destruction idea and, and that's where i wanted you to head yeah. yes well that's a good deal of it but also yeah. i just want to finish the, the winding Sorry. way thought yeah. uh but also now that we've gotten to that point where we realize okay we're not going to do that we have to find other means and i think that's what this treaty has laid the groundwork for because it talks about how the u.s has gotten much more active in its foreign policy since then it's like well yeah i don't know that this is the reason why but because nobody wants to declare war because that's you know we don't do that anymore we agreed to that in 1928 we do it by proxy. Yeah, yeah. And that's the winding way. Yes, uh, proxy conflicts. Yes, yes. Sorry, no. Yes, no, no, no. Process. It's just uh, I was I was reminded of the movie Crimson Tide, which uh, 
wonderful movie, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, uh, that they're on the brink of nuclear war. And the argument in the submarine is about that, saying, no, there's, there's no, the only true enemy now is war itself. They're speaking about von Clausewitz, which we've done an episode on, and he said that the true enemy can no longer be destroyed because it must be avoided at all costs because there is no such thing as a nuclear war. There is only nuclear holocaust. And that's exactly one of the reasons. If you want to talk about the concept of why war has... Different is different now. I don't want to say it's gone, but it is. Oh, different. it's definitely not gone. Yeah, I mean, it's different. Is not uh, this may have given a idealistic reasoning for such a thing, but it is it is ultimately uh, thank exactly. You, thank you, yes. Oppenheimer. Yes, it's mutually assured destruction. At this yeah, point. It, it's definitely. I think two things um, that and really nothing to do with all these layers of treaties or even the UN, but it's one. Because war can be complete and absolute destruction of everything now, right? In a sense that it never has been, right? And even without nuclear weapons, you, those in Europe realize that because of the devastation to France and Germany, right? Uh, and the other thing being, to to humanity's great credit, there are fewer and fewer non-consensual governments. Yes, it's not gone. It's no. not gone. But the ones that are non-consensual are today's bad actors. But countries with consensual governments, even when they have meaning the people have the right to vote, even the stupid ones, yes, even the the stupid stupid ones. ones. (laughs) You know, even when they have conflicting interests, simply do not wage war against each other. Right. Right. Even so, the irony being, um, you know, not only. Countries don't want to fight anymore, but we invented the ultimate weapon that is so destructive. We really don't want to have wars anymore. Right? Not what well, we, we don't thought have... it was the you know this horrible thing, but nuclear weapons enforce peace. We don't want to have wars with other nuclear powers. There's a difference between not wanting to have wars because of nuclear weapons. And not wanting to have wars with others who have nuclear weapons. Yes. As but we have seen, we'll go to Iraq and Afghanistan. And Russia will go into the Ukraine, who gave up all of their nuclear weapons, precisely on the promise that Russia would never invade them. Yes. That was the, the, the quid pro quo. Fine, we'll give them up as long as you promise not to invade. Because they didn't have the, the money the, the, or the resources to maintain those. Yeah. But maybe they should have kept one or two. <laughs> Or more than one or two, because... Kept the rockets, anyway. Yeah. Take the warheads, but we'll keep the rockets. Exactly. You know. So, some kind of deterrence. You know, if you look at the wars that go on, civil wars aside... Yes. It, it's, it's what keeps small-scale theater conflicts from spilling yes. out bigger and bigger and dragging in... Well, people have realized, yeah, which nobody wants. Well, that's World War One. That's you know, right. they recognized where that the, the interconnectedness right. leads. That's well, why and what World, World War Two taught you. Yeah, World War One taught you that. You know, yeah. Beware of foreign entanglements. <laughs> yeah. George Washington was right. Beware of foreign <laughs> entanglements. But what World War Two taught you was, you don't want to go to war against those who are your relative peers, whether it be nuclear peers or just straight up conventional arms because of the devastation. I want to say that given when this was done and the relative prosperity in the world, uh, Germany notwithstanding, because Germany is still mired in 
the middle of what for them is a 20-year depression. Yeah. Uh, you know, our, well, you could say that their depression is really uh, 10 years earlier because once they start ramping up militarily in the 30s, a lot of that goes away because they're, people are going back to work doing that. That's kind of, which is what happens to the us in the you know, late 30s, early 40s when we get ready for World War II. The depression goes away because you put people to work building things. But it also almost makes me wonder, is this just the guys sitting around smoking cigars and, and drinking their fine whiskeys in boardrooms saying, you know, war may be good for business, but war is also much, much worse for business. Mm-hmm. Because this almost sounds like a bunch of guys got together and said, uh, let's let's try and you know avoid this because it's really bad when we kill out and kill all of our customers. You know, it almost sounds more like a, we want peace for the economic prosperity, which, as we have seen, is a, is a real thing. Very much so. Yeah. Peace yeah. produces more prosperity than war. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a bourbon break, and then I want to come back to something you mentioned. Okay. Because you used a particular word that it, that is important. So, uh, Robert, what have you got there? I forgot what you said you'd poured. So, I poured the um, uh, Elijah Craig small batch. Uh, on the bottle, it's, it's uh, embossed 1789. Uh, so, I don't know if that... I think that's when Elijah Craig started. Uh, yeah. he, he is considered... The original Elijah Craig, the man, is considered the father of bourbon. Uh, so, maybe when he his distillery found... Because bourbon is much older than 1789, even. Uh, but it is, of course, uh, you know, America's, America's national spirit, mm-hmm. as we have talked about before. Um, bourbon, not not this. But this it, is good bourbon. It's got an interesting uh, flavor and and bite. Uh, it, it's very early. Uh, it's a little sharp, mm-hmm. I guess, is what I would call it. Uh, hits that that uh, top of the mouth, yeah. the palate. Elijah Craig is one of my favorites. Uh, always loved it. Uh, always find it has kind of that uh, maple syrup, woodsy, uh, caramel oakiness to it um, I get the uh, at a really good price point I get that sweetness that caramel I'm getting that that uh, bit of smoky flavor uh, on the tongue yeah uh, in the roof of the mouth uh, so it, it and definitely I did not want my first sip because I'm, I'm trying to do this uh, as close to neat and then later after the, the ice mm-hmm. has melted a bit just get a different so when I, my first sip right after I dropped the ice in mm-hmm. I was very sharp. The water uh, melting from the ice definitely softens that, and the flavors are much more noticeable. I cannot stress it enough, Otterites, you must, must, must drink your bourbon with a little bit of water. I mean, at the very least, uh, there's probably some bourbons out there that are just fine without it, but I've yet to find one that I prefer neat to on the rocks or just with a, a little bit of water. It just, it just tends to make the flavors bloom. Yeah, bloom is a great word for it, yeah. yeah. Francis, what did you pour, man? Exactly the same. Are uh, you enjoying it? Yeah, absolutely. I went, I went on the rocks. You know, I, yes, I, we have converted you because for the longest time you, you were, I won't say stubborn, but you were quite uh, adamant in your neat. Neatness. Staunchly neat. Well, because it, I just felt like anything less than that was diluted, which of course it is, but in, in the worst way. Recognizing now that that's part of the intention is that it be done this well, way. Well, this is this is ninety six proof. Yeah. So this really it is intended uh, when you get to those higher proofs that you should have a splash of something in there to to uh, help dilute it just a little bit. You don't have to, obviously, uh, but you know it's kind of the intention. You know, when you look at those, it's not a bad thing to cut it a little bit with. 
Yeah. Uh, I thought I was losing something. Uh, it, I had to learn over time that no, you're, right, you're gaining something. You're gaining something by doing by adding this, uh, and uh, having it chilled like that with the with the ice cubes definitely makes it. Uh, you, you can drink more of it. You really can. It, it, uh, yeah, it does make it last because you know you get the depending on how much ice and water you, you use. I don't add water itself; I just do the ice. Right. So. Uh, you know, it does last longer because then you, you have that blend of water and bourbon, too. Yeah, it's just not as strong or as harsh. Yeah, like I said, I think it makes it smoother. smoother exactly. This one especially, it, there's a distinct difference in the smoothness. Mm-hmm. So, all right, I poured a glass of Buffalo Trace. And if you've listened, you know, that's a brand that I have derided in the past. Uh, accused yes, of and being. we have a deri- derision story for it in just a moment. Yes, we need to so, talk about that. Yeah, so the backstory is that Bjorn, who has appeared on our podcast, has been working at a local chain of liquor stores the last three weeks because I needed to get him out of the house. He needed a job desperately. Um, so he has actually been working close to 40 hours a week for three weeks. Um, it it might have been a mistake to turn a 21-year-old loose uh, as an employee at a liquor store, but I figure it's better than the gun store. Better than both. You know, bringing home <laughs> bringing home something from the liquor store every day is usually a little cheaper than bringing home something from the gun store. But uh, he, he's, he's a curious dude, so he likes to explore. And Buffalo Trace is on something called Allocation meaning they don't have it all the time. And when they get it, they can't even tell people, we just got a shipment in. So if you call and ask this chain, do you have Buffalo Trace? The answer will be, we can't tell you. You just got to come and see. Interesting, because the... Uh, it's a legal thing, apparently. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, because they're, they're splitting up the source, there's so many stores wanting it, and it's the one I was at yesterday. Out. Yeah, so, well, and of course they got their shipment yesterday. So he grabbed a bottle and brought it home. It's like, but dude, that's the one I think tastes like medicine. Why don't you? So in the, in the spirit of, uh, you know, snakes and otters and, and intellectual inquiry, okay. I All decided right. to give it a second chance. Rapprochement. Come on. Yes. <laughs> Make it happen. Right. You also tended to be more of a neat drinker. Uh, early on, weren't originally, you? it's usually yeah. neat, but then you know the ice and 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 all that. Uh, I kind of adopted that fairly early on. Yes, we have been educated, as Jean Luc Picard would say. So, my verdict's a little less harsh, but to me, it still does have kind of a minty taste almost to it. Minty, which is going to remind to me. I, I don't see how this doesn't remind every drinker of toothpaste. Right. Or a mouthwash or something like yes. that. Yes, so I mean it's very, very it's mouthwash. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, this is this is Listerine. Why am I drinking this? Um, <laughs> You're right. Listerine's much cheaper than, than the Buffalo Trace. <laughs> is it? Um, so, but, so, but now which Buffalo Trace? Because obviously nowadays you can't just say, well, this is Buffalo Trace. This is what because there's a hundred yeah, well, different kinds. They're all different, but apparently this is just regular Buffalo Trace. Okay, so the, they, the, the main formula, so the yeah, main man. really is. Apparently jacked the price, because I think at one time you could get Buffalo Trace at 18 bucks a bottle, and now it's more like 28 mm. So um, I, I just think at that price point, stick with wild turkey. Yeah. 
four roses. Right. And you get a four just, roses small batch for that. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. And, and so, I know, I don't, again, I, I understand there are a ton of people that, that just love, love Buffalo Trace. Right. I think it's awesome. And again, maybe it's not as bad as my original verdict, but it's still, it's still kind of toothpastey to me. Interesting. So while we're on bourbon break, and not to extend this, but and we're, since we're talking Buffalo Trace, i got to tell you the, 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 the Trader Joe story, uh, auto rights. So uh, as you know, we, we tried the Trader Joe that uh, Mrs. Robert bought me uh, some time ago, and we universally did not like it. Panned it. Panned it. I would not say despise, but I would say panned it. Oh, I, I would say despise. Okay, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I would go despise. Because it was very medicinal, and adding ice... And letting it melt to dilute to get the water to bring up, it didn't do a damn thing for it. It tasted just as bad over ice as it did straight up neat, and which is unusual because I don't even know how that happens because everything we've ever tried, it should change. Should change it. Yeah. Uh, Now I did find out that Trader Joe's is based on a Buffalo Trace. Bourbon. That's where they get their bourbon. Right. It's because it, it, it's a house brand. It's right, and a lot of a they lot of distilleries do this. They yeah. will source their bourbon to other places to put their name on it, or they'll disper- They'll uh, send it to those distilleries that are blended bourbons. They yeah. do blended whiskeys, uh, which is fine because actually there's some blended whiskeys out there right. that are and very that, fine. And that way, a, 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 a retailer gets to claim an exclusive. Exactly, they, which it is. Yeah, if you do that. Yeah, uh, especially the blonde. We had a Kroger exclusive uh, not too long ago that right. I had bought. So, so I had this bottle left over because I wasn't going to drink it. So, uh, Francis and I were in uh, Saint Minard, Indiana, where we have recorded once. Uh, we were there That's for okay. a retreat. Indeed. And uh, being the lushes that uh, all of us in the community are, uh, uh, we we always have a, a, a number of bottles of. Alcohol there, uh, bourbon, rum, scotch, wines, uh, the occasional beer even, and I took it up there thinking. Looks with beer. Say it isn't so. I know. So I took the Trader Joe's up there thinking, let them try it, see if anybody else has a different opinion. Well, about two thirds of the bottle got drank, or at least poured. 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 Important distinction. Yes. Very important. So one of our very good friends, he tried it. He he. He just thought it was awful. You know, it's that same medicinal taste that we, we encountered. And so he said, all right, I'll, I'll try mixing it with something because it's bourbon, you know. It's got to be good somehow. Mm. The mixing didn't help. Even adding uh, Coke to his <laughs> bourbon oh, did nothing for it. He ended up throwing it out, and he told me he felt more guilty for throwing out the Coke than he did the bourbon that was in it. That's kind of like in The Sound of Music when they asked Maria, well, what happened to all your other clothes? She goes, well, even the poor didn't want those. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> so, of the same thing. So I'm thinking that you know, all those people that tried it did not finish it because I couldn't find anybody who liked it. And I ended up tossing that last third of a bottle in the trash. Because even the bottle itself wasn't all that distinctive. I mean, it was a little different, but it wasn't one I wanted to keep for my shelf. Because I keep the, the nifty bottles. Yeah, the, the nifty you know, bottle, yeah. yeah. It's so odd. That's just so unlike our experience. Have such a bad bourbon, right? It's like, how do you screw this up? All right, and apparently this is some form of the Buffalo Trace seventeen ninety two mixes that they've got because okay. apparently that's the same distillery. This would seem to be the exception to the rule that you've always said. Yes, there it is. is. No such thing as a bad bourbon. Yes. Asterisk. Asterisk. 
See, see below, Trader Joe's. See yes. Trader Joe's, the one yes. exception that we found so far. Yeah, because this is not a burger. Because if, if you can't even put a Coke in it and make it uh, drinkable, then... Because, I mean, the Coke overpowers the bourbon. Yeah, all that sugar should just swallow bourbon completely. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So... Very good bourbon break, gentlemen. Very good bourbon break. So Robert guilty about throwing out the Coke than the bourbon. I mean, I can't think of a stronger condemnation. So Trader Joe's, whatever you're doing, you you got to change. Yeah. See, source it from somebody else and get some other thing going. And I did see a, a review real quick that uh, somebody reviewed it and you know they, it was like yeah it was okay called it mediocre meaning you know, kind of middle of the road kind of stuff and some other people thought it was okay and decent for mixing I'm like. I don't even know what universe you people live in, because it's not the same universe I live in. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, you you had a yeah. So there was a word that you used, Robert, deterrence. Yes. And I think that's that's a very concise summation of the point I was making that these treaties and even the UN mean nothing. What really means something now is nuclear deterrence. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. And even if you don't go nuclear, just the threat of, of large-scale invasion, if that is a thing. Because mm-hmm. uh, nuclear really works best for the big guys, the peer players. Uh, you know, it keeps Russia and the United States from going to war. Uh, so, at least directly. Uh, but, you know, for the smaller countries... What is you know what is deterrence there? I mean, you're still there, I guess, because Israel, you know, without nukes, they probably would have been overrun, you know, thirty years ago. Although they did try that fifty years ago, it didn't work so well for them. In the right. I mean, war. even before Israel becomes a nuclear power, they are able to defend themselves. Right. Now they have to buy a lot of it from us. They do. They have the tools to do it. But they are incredibly well disciplined, well trained. But they armies. understood the necessity of being prepared. Right. Dare I say, peace through strength. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they are, they are, Israel and the Arab world around them is probably the best example of what deterrence really looks like. Because the last time they had a war was in 1973, and the Arabs got their butts kicked. I mean, it's everybody around them. Everybody. And in six days it was over, and Israel, like, tripled their territory. They got attacked and tripled their territory. Yep. That's badass, boys. Yeah, you have to be. And ready. nobody's touched them since. And, and and that kind of thought can be very derided. People, oh no, no, you you know you have to reach out and you have to be peaceful. It's like, well, yeah, okay, that stuff's good. That idealism, that moralism is okay, but in the end, that is this pact. This that's yeah, Briand. It's again. Cut it narrow and roll it around a cardboard center and put it by the toilet. What really prevents war is the old Roman adage, you know, if you want well, peace, prepare for war. Yeah, I, I, I think it's not just that. I, that is a large part. Because I think deterrence is when it comes to your, your other point, Martin, for the non-consensual governed nations. Yes. That's what deterrence is for. Yes, you you've got to deter the North Koreas, the Russias, the Chinas, the Chinas. Yes. Yeah. What deters Canada and the U.S. or Canada and Great Britain or the U.S. and Germany and France from going to war is that we are too economically tied to one another now. 
going to war with each other is striking a blow against ourselves. Why is China staying out of the Ukrainian-Russian fight? Because they sell too much stuff to America. And there's only so much of that Russian oil they can buy to prop up Putin. Because somebody's got to be buying his oil. Because otherwise, he probably would have run out of money by now. Because this has taken about ten times longer than, than he thought it would. He thought this is going to be and Germany the, rolling into Poland. Yeah, I mean, it they was did not. not have a crap ton of money to begin with. Right. And that's why, you know, a lot of this these war material that they had is not really in good condition. No. Uh, they use, we talked about it last month, you know, they use precision-guided bombs for carpet bombing because they don't maintain the technology to do laser-guided bombing. Yeah, it's like, well, what's the point of spending all the money on the bombs if you don't actually have the planes that can yeah. deliver it properly? Yeah, it's it's not surgical, even though it's intended to be a surgical weapon. Right. Looks good on paper, but in reality, it's no better than a dumb bomb that we dropped in World War II. Yeah. I mean, maybe a little better, but not by much. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's there's two things that keep people from going to war. Economic self-interest and the fear of destruction. Yeah. And entangled in that economic self-interest, I think, as well, is, yeah, it would just be hard to sell to your people that this other country that enjoys the same sort of life we do with rights and privileges and, and the vote, and say, well, they're an enemy. I mean, how could they be an enemy? Right. You know, that's a really good point. Uh, I... I that's an excellent point because when you think about um, when you think about going to war nowadays, look at the people who, who go to war. They are generally very different governing philosophies, very different social philosophies, yeah, and very different values based on those differing philosophies. So even though you know the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Empire, was part of Russia. For a long time, it never lost its individual identity, and even though in many ways they are very similar, it is still more of a Western-style democracy than Russia is. And even though there were lots of economic ties, you got to have both economic ties and that similar kind of the social social tie. yeah social the, contract yeah right. social recognizing that other entity yeah. as Something similar to yourself. Right. You know, if you could, like, we could walk the streets of Rome when we went there and feel just as at home, language aside, yeah, as walking the streets of any city here in the United States. Uh, now, granted, there's a lot more nifty things to look at uh, walking the streets of Rome, but, I mean, it was a similar culture. Uh, you know, and, and in many ways, our culture is based on what their culture was based on. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things to that. So, yeah. yeah, that deterrence is part of it. But it, I think there's so much more It's a culture that recognizes, dare I say, the... Dignity. The inherent, inherent dignity of the human person. person. That's yes. right. You are on fire. You are. But, yeah, I mean, that... If you think about it, that really is the core of why you go to war or not. Yeah. You think the other are not fully human or not worth engaging in any other way. They're yeah. only worth destroying because they're in your way. I mean, that's essentially... That's what a doing. very frightening concept to a modern it is. sensibility. 
And what you were talking about, how, you know, especially uh, in the the political liberal side of things, uh, you, know, you tend to have the, oh, you know, if we just sit down and talk with one another and see where we have things in common. It's like, well, yes, but that only works with people you already have things in common with. If you don't have those commonalities, you have no basis to sit down and talk things over. Yeah. You know, that's why the U.S. intervening in Afghanistan was ultimately a failure. Because, because I mean, the Taliban is back in power. What did we accomplish? We didn't, I mean, we accomplished a lot, but it was temporary. And not all of it was good. I mean, yes, we have ultimately got bin Laden, but what did we spawn in the process? You know, it's easy to say these things in hindsight. I get that. Because, yeah, absolutely. you know, when we went to Afghanistan, almost the entire country was for it. So it's not like this is saying, well, I wasn't for it then, because that's not true. But it, you can't build peace with people that are so radically different uh, just by imposing it. You can't, like, even if you go to war with them, unless you utterly destroy them. Right. It's right. not going to work. Like I've always said, it's... You know, we are where we are in this world because we flattened two nations in Japan and Germany and rebuilt them in our image. Exactly. So that's that's what needed to be done in Afghanistan, but and but we didn't do it. Right. We in Germany, it was easier it. to rebuild them because, again, common culture. Yeah. In Japan, I think it happened because once they were defeated, that changed how they saw themselves. Yes. Uh, and because that you know you lost all honor. In defeat, yeah. whereas in the Middle East, it doesn't work because defeat is only a temporary setback for them uh, in both uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, this very long and they've been of, used to this over and over and over. Right, again. and there is no common culture. Yeah, they've been defeated by the Brits or Alexander the Great or whoever. For centuries. Right. So it, we'll just hang out here for a little while and everything will flop back our way. Right. And plus that, you know, the unifying, uh, also segmenting, but also the, the, you know, the relative unifying religious culture also teaches, yeah. is going to teach them, just wait. You know, we'll yeah. get ours eventually. Yeah. And so, you know, w- without that economic self-interest, that commonality, or that in utter defeat, you just, okay, you know... It, war is almost inevitable to happen again. So treaties don't, again, treaties only do so much. Yeah, yeah. And so, again, I, I do think a lot of what the pointed criticisms of Kellogg Brian are right, but at the same time, there is this kernel yes. of something valuable in that it did set a stage for holding these bad actors Accountable. Right. It oh, recognized God. some certain... It, it legitimized across all nations the ideas that... Or the idea that war is not the preferred way to go about international relations. Right, right. And it, it strongly rebukes the notion of territorial expansion by a war. Yes. And, of course, in our modern world, understanding how... You know, an information age economy works. You can be an economic powerhouse without territory. We right. saw it before the uh, Hong Kong takeover. We saw it. You know, you South Korea. South Korea, Liechtenstein. I mean, yeah. 
Luxembourg, I mean, these places are wealthy. Switzerland's wealthy without massive territory. Switzerland trade has always been has been wealthy for a long time because of their banking. <laughs> That's why nobody ever inv- invades there because they want their money kept safe. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, the Alps help. Well, the Alps help. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're but nowadays it doesn't matter. You know, because I mean, you could, we can get people there if we were, you know, if you want. Ah, uh, yes, but the place is so neat; it scares the shit out of people. Well, that's probably <laughs> the truth. they don't yeah. want any part of that. That's true. So, the other thing, though, that uh, I'm sorry, yeah, please go. No, ahead. well, you because you, you were pointing at Francis, I want to make sure you were. Well, I just uh, wanted to apologize. I've let uh, Robert sort of dominate our discussion, but he had some. That means this is not even my treaty. Yeah, he's been rolling and it's been awesome stuff. So I just wanted to give Francis before we wrapped up. You know, a chance to, to, to run with something here. No, I've I, 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 I agreed with everything that uh, that both you and Robert have said. I do like, I do think we should emphasize the fact that Nuremberg happened as it happened with this as a legal basis. That's yes, something that's a very that, important point. Even though, you know, we, we read that very, very, very brief on that, it gave, it, we say it's useless, and that's true in many ways. But by it, itself, it's useless. I, yeah, but I yeah, but it, it gives you a moral scaffolding. Yes, and see, to, we to don't build just because the it, legalities. That's or something exactly like that. right. That's what I'm saying. Sometimes taking the moral high ground may be seen as ridiculous and useless, but in this, but sometimes it really is just for itself right. the right thing. To Absolutely, do. Yes. Absolutely. That's morality exactly, is one thing. Just but, because it, morality yeah. and practicality. Yeah need not be mutually exclusive. Because right. law is the practical expression of morality. That is correct. Yes. And this and, and that's the thing that, that so many don't understand. We legislate morality every time we pass a law. That's correct. Right. Every time. Right. Because it that is it is the practical expression of our cultural morality. Exactly. Yeah of that of of those things which we hold sacred. I mean this world that we live in now exists, it seems, on virtue signaling. Law is the ultimate and the first virtue signaling. It's the only virtue signaling that really matters. I was about to say that very same thing. It's the only thing that has any uh, enforceability or teeth or relevance, ultimately. And And by virtue signaling, you know, Otterites, I don't mean you going about your life doing what's right to begin with. We're talking about the virtue signaling where people talk about how great they are because they subscribe to this point of view or they did this one thing because it's what the in thing is or what's the current cause it's it's always about sitcom creator feeling guilty about the non-diversity of the cast of a show she created 25 years ago right yes I saw that you're not guilty I mean okay fine could it could have been better could have been done more diverse characters but it didn't lose anything. It didn't. You wouldn't have gained anything by changing the show, right? It, could it have been better? Maybe. But as far as quality of the show, could it have been better represented, or representative of the the American culture? Sure. But that's true of every show that only has ten people in it. And it's not necessarily the creators. I mean. Talk to the casting director. Well, I, I'm pretty sure the creators have, you know, the, 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 the executive producers, showrunners, they have a lot to do with that. Yeah, well, too. probably what yeah, I Yeah, Tom Krasinski, the showrunner, has 
complete control even over the cast. They just have somebody that does the work for them, but right. they have the ability to say... Yeah, yeah, so maybe the casting director is at fault for not bringing enough people to be selected. Yeah. But either way, you know, and, and, and that's there's not no, to say that... There's no having, reason for that person to, like, this massive guilt. It's like, right. that's misplaced. Fine. That's yeah, if, you, if you think you could have done a better job, then do a better job the next time. Well, that show's been done for 25 years. It's time to reboot it. Every, they, they do that all the time. Yeah, but the reboots never work well. Well, there are exceptions. Battlestar Galactica is a good example. That's a, that's the exception that proves the rule. That's right. Exactly. Because um, it was... Uh, but it was also, in its own way, radically different. Absolutely. So was, which is often the case. Yes. Yeah. So anyways, one last thing before we finish. What's our time? We're at 48. So oh, this plenty of time. Last, plenty of time. Is, yeah. Do the last so, one of the things that we talked about in show prep that I don't think we talked about during the show was the unintended consequences. So, Briefly, yeah. So, one of the things that I thought was interesting as my mind played that out across history was the comment that, uh, you know, American foreign policy got more active uh, and that uh, wars by proxy, this wasn't the wording uh, in this part, but, but basically wars by proxy became more of a thing because we don't want to declare war anymore because we've agreed to this very high sounding ideal so we aren't going to declare war yeah. so we're going to have a police action in Korea or we're going to have a conflict in Vietnam mm-hmm. or we're just going to go to Iraq go to Afghanistan or if you're Russia go to Afghanistan go to Iran <laughs> go to Iraq go to Syria excuse me that's probably Syria. the better one for yeah. um, go to the Ukraine and these things by any real measure, they're wars, uh, or we support one side or another in a civil war, such as Korea and Vietnam. And it gets to the point where, oh, our guys are losing. We better step in and send guys over. So this certainly did not end real war. It created a different kind of war. And now, in the, the modern age, with technology being what it is, we're in an undeclared war probably with half the world. They're trying to hack everything in, in the U.S. And we're probably doing the same to them. So, I mean, people talk about Russian and Chinese bots on Facebook. It's like, well, I don't know how true all... I don't know how much is really Russian and Chinese bots or not, but I'm sure they exist. You know, screwing things up and, and what have you. And Although, personally, I think... You know the the fact checkers on Facebook are far more fearsome to me than the any Russian bot because they're far more tyrannical. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, that's part of what's held up the Twitter sale to Elon Musk is getting the idea of well, just how many real users are there, right? And you know because the contention being what ten percent or something of the accounts are or all more. crap, yeah, yeah. And so that's a measure of its real value in a in a stock purchase. Right. Well, you know, if you if you get rid of the unreal accounts, that's fewer advertising eyes that are potentially looking. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a thing it's to a consider. Real thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's an economic impact to making it better. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. But yeah, it's, so I think it's legitimized war by other means. You know, say diplomacy is war by another name. Uh, you know. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's kind of what this this yeah. pact has done. It's it's turned the wars into a strength test yeah how much can a large nation bear you know what what are you willing to take on can your economy stay afloat while you also wage a limited theater war 
Right. Can you have a 600-ship navy and be able to fight uh, two wars at the same time, two regional wars? Because that was the thing in the 80s. Yeah. You know, we wanted to be able to have a 600-ship navy, 12 or more aircraft groups, and be able to fight two regional wars. We couldn't do it now. No. No. Uh, but the point was, though, that was part of our deterrence. You know, was the conve- that was our conventional deterrence. Yeah. Deterrence. I love that word. That was very good, Robert. Very, Thank very you. good. Thank so, guys, uh, I think that was a tremendous episode. Kellogg Brion is not about cereal. That's correct. Yes, I'm glad. Yeah, I looked for that on the shelf. Couldn't find it anywhere. Couldn't find it anywhere. So, so I just, just stuck with Captain Crunch? Stuck with Captain Crunch, yeah. Francis, my man. What is next? Time. Code of Honor again. Now, we a themed a code, theme of, code honor. of Honor. Yeah, for the next several months, we're going to be, as we delve into our philosophers and philosophies, so when, whenever we're talking about a particular philosopher in a given month, the Code of Honor that precedes it will be quotations by these great thinkers and thoughts. Next time, it's going to be the great John Locke, who we owe so, so very much to. Uh, Boys, get your researchers going. You may have already picked something. Maybe you haven't. But we're going to have a great time with this great stuff. So be here. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.